very warm welcome to Blind Squirrel Macro, the pod. This is your squirrel speaking. I'm recording this on the morning of Tuesday the 17th of October, Melbourne time. This podcast is a companion to our weekly newsletter, which you can find for free at blindsquirrelmacro.com. The letter contains graphics, charts, and a multitude of links that I may refer to in this pod. It also contains our portfolio update and a review of our Acorn trade ideas. I've still not yet mastered audio editing software and so record it in a single take, so please forgive any stumbles. But as ever, before we start, a very quick message from Legal. Everything in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is categorically not investment advice. Before making any investment decisions, for heaven's sakes, don't listen to a cartoon rodent. Talk to a financial advisor. Now, this week, we're going to talk about the dangers of extrapolation. The 2023 equity fund managers' relative performance report cards for the year are going to be largely defined by their investment approach to two major themes. The first one is obviously artificial intelligence. Basically, did you own enough stock in NVIDIA, the chip company? But a close number two is what you need if you eat too much of the other types of chip, obesity drugs. In this case, the question for the investor is, have you managed to surf the GLP-1 wave with full helpings of Nova Nordisk or of Eli Lilly. The winning investors of this year have been enthusiastic embracers of extrapolation. Now, regular readers will know that I've been unable to get my head around the growth and market share assumptions that one needs to extrapolate to justify the current valuation of NVIDIA, and that it was only Mrs. Squirrel's compliance policy that mercifully prevented me from attempting to buy put options in the name back in May. I confess to have missed the obesity drug party too, but for very different reasons. I believe that pharma and biotech investing requires a highly specialised skill set that I simply do not possess. As a result, I tend to try to deliberately ignore the next big thing in healthcare, as I never want to fall into the trap of buying a stock just because the herd is is doing so. Oh, and please don't start me on hot tips in the biotech sector. They're worse than junior resource stocks from Vancouver or from Perth. I'm still nursing the wounds from buying those small cap biotechs with quote-unquote really promising preliminary data on a medical condition that I've often never even heard of. The biggest reason that I've ignored the GLP-1 revolution until recently was that I'd actually embarrassingly misappreciated some basic facts. I had foolishly slightly written off these new drugs as an expensive fad reserved for Hollywood starlets or Upper East Side trophy brides. Surely such an expensive treatment, and I was hearing thousands of dollars per month forever, and I say forever because my understanding is that you simply cannot stop taking these things once you start, otherwise the pounds go straight back on. Surely something that expensive would struggle to garner a blockbuster-sized addressable market. It was only last week that I discovered that my assumptions around pricing were flawed. They had a very strong geographical bias. I can tell you that any back-of-the-envelope maths to calculate a potential market size changes dynamically when you understand that the rest of the world is already enjoying a 90% off while stocks laughed sale on these GLP-1 drugs relative to the United States. According to some recent data from KFF, a monthly course of injectable of Zempic will set you back $936 in Los Angeles. The same course here in Melbourne, 87 bucks. Not exactly free, but this fact certainly shifts the analysis somewhat. 
Now, I promise that this is not going to be another squirrel piece about regulatory capture in the US healthcare system. You full well know my views on that. No, my reason for disappearing down this drug pricing rabbit hole was that I'd been doing a lot of work on food inflation for an upcoming ACORN report on the grains market, where incidentally I'm getting quite bullish. The extent of extra investor extrapolation about the knock-on impact of Ozempic and all of these other obesity drugs on multiple industries was almost starting to make me question whether or not I should be interrogating some of my own assumptions around long-term demand for sugar, wheat and corn. Morgan Stanley, the investment bank, recently published a report that I linked to in my note that paints a picture of 24 million Americans taking GLP-1 drugs by 2035. Scott Galloway has a lot of fun riffing in on this same report in his No Mercy, No Malice blog from last Friday, again linked to in the note. I completely agree with Prof G that a reduction in obesity would remove a dramatic strain on the healthcare systems of the West. Scott shared some data from the Milken Institute that tracks the healthcare costs of obesity by disease in the US, over a trillion dollars annually from hypertension, type 2 diabetes and osteoarthritis alone. I smile to myself as I recall a younger squirrel that got sucked into a small cap biotech with a blockbuster drug for osteoarthritis a few years ago. A small and very much depreciated position still sits in my back book as a reminder that I do not do biotech tips. But anyway, the winners and losers extrapolation analysis has once again moved to extremes pretty quickly. While Nova Nordisk and Eli Lilly have collectively amassed nearly half a trillion dollars in market cap in one year, Mr. Market would have us believe that the cure for obesity has confined several other industries and sectors to the garbage bin of history. Companies in the sleep apnea space, such as ResMed and Inspire, organ transplant specialists like Transmedics, and plastic surgery play InMode have seen their share prices halve in the past 90 days. I suspect that this is probably excessive. A whole, a whole obituary is being prepared for big food, snack food and fizzy drink industry. Think Coke, Pepsi, Hershey's and Mondelez. Apparently our drug improved physiques imply the beginning of the end for Peloton and its iPad enhanced exercise bikes. And we will never re renew a gym membership again. Adios Planet Fitness. Even the golden arches of McDonald's or Macca's as it's affectionately known down here down under and the other fast food outlets are being marked down as if they're on an inevitable glide path to zero. In investor extrapolation has gone truly wild. Bloomberg's Matt Levine wrote a great article on this consumption extrapolation, which I linked to in the note. It includes this banger of a line. I do think it would be a crowning achievement of postmodern capitalism if the corporate world, in aggregate, was able to make more money by charging people for not consuming stuff than it does by selling them stuff. Some of the GLP-1 loser D ratings really look like they're taking things to extremes. Now we're all aware of Keynes's wise words about rational markets and solvency, and don't worry, this squirrel is not going to be advocating a long junk food short GLP-1 basket anytime soon. As I mentioned earlier, I'm no healthcare specialist, but for those readers so inclined, I would suspect there are probably some great bargains to be had amongst those beaten down medical plays. I'm also not sure that I would be rushing to buy the dip in the fast food chains either. They've got, they've got other issues that, um, that I don't have time to go into here. Similarly, I'll leave dip buying in Peloton and Planet Fitness to braver souls. 
I do, however, want to spend a bit of time on big food and the consumer staples. Like utility stocks, household name staples are a traditional port in a storm at times of troubled markets and recessions. Any investor hiding out in the XLP Consumer Staples ETF has had a very tough three months. It's down almost 10%. Even after the recent correction, I would not yet classify them as cheap in the aggregate. On average, the forward earnings yield in this group, which you calculate by dividing one by the forward price to earnings ratio, is 5.7%, a mere 0.7% pickup on what you would earn from lending money to the US government for two years. That's not quite enough for this rodent. Drilling down a bit further, let's take a closer look at big food. They're down on average 20% in the last 90 days. The impact of taking the biggest consumers of processed packaged food and other sinful stuff like booze and tobacco out of the economic equation via SEMPIC could indeed be significant. Some analysis from Cory Wang, a strategist at Google, caught my eye. It turns out that the consumption of junk food and other unhealthy stuff is pretty concentrated among the US population. Did you know, for example, that 70% of ice cream in the US is consumed by 20% of the adult population, or that 77% of fizzy drinks are consumed by 20% of adults? I just hope it's not the same 20%. The GLP-1 impact on certain packaged food categories could potentially be very significant if those target cohorts can actually afford the treatment. So maybe this extrapolation isn't so crazy after all. Well, we'll soon know how big this threat really is. It'll be when big food lobby in Washington starts turning hostile and we start to read articles about GLP-1 users growing second heads. In the squirrel's view, the bigger threat to the valuation of big food companies comes from the width of their supposed brand moats. Back in July, I wrote about the phenomenon of influencer consumer brands during a riff on inflation and consumer nihilism. In my discussion of the prime energy drink, I did not spend enough time thinking about prime's impact on PepsiCo's Gatorade. Edwin Dorsey, author of the Bear Cave Substack, has been superb on this theme. He's written on the threat to Coca-Cola's Powerade franchise from the likes of the prime drink and its competitor, Celsius. He's also written about the risks to Hershey's Halloween chocolate dominance from the famed YouTuber Mr. Beast and his Feastables candy bars. It's worth hunting down these reports. I really think Edwin is onto something. He also recorded a podcast with Know Your Risk Radio's Zach Abraham after publishing his short report on Hershey's. Interesting guy. It's a great listen, and there's a link to it in the note. What was fascinating for me was how much heat he took on the report from traditional, traditional buy and sell side coverage on the sector. People didn't like it at all. My sense is that big food is already getting worried about this. Seeing Senator Chuck Schumer being rolled out by his donors the other day to have a go at prime drink was just an eye-opener for me. I guess we'll really know how worried they are about the GLP-1 drugs when these same politicians start asking earnest questions about the negative side effects from taking semaglutide, that's a Zempix active ingredient. In the meantime, Big Snacks brands are under attack from the Gen Z influencers and their stocks do not look cheap yet. On average, Coke, Pepsi, Dr. Pepper, Hershey's and Mondelez trade on 3.8 times forward sales, 15 times forward EBITDA and 20 times forward earnings. It feels to me that there's further, further scope for a derating for these names. 
Now, this is about as close as the squirrel will be prepared to get to fade the investing acumen of Warren Buffett. There is no doubt that Uncle Warren absolutely nailed it with the legendary Berkshire Hathaway investments in junk food. 16 times an investment on Coca-Cola and an 80-bagger in C's candy. However, in the age of the online influencer, I do worry about the sustainability of those deep brand moats that he and Mr. Munger celebrate. Warren and Charlie may be an investment in the investment beast category, but are they a match for Mr. Beast? One thing for sure is that at the lofty multiples they currently trade at, they're the last stocks that this squirrel would want to hide out it in any kind of recession, if indeed one of those is to be on the cards. And that all brings me back to my starting point. I disappeared down the GLP-1 rabbit hole as part of a red teaming my bullish views on further upstream, i.e. in ags. With the increased market volatility in the past weeks, I've been holding off on publishing my big repositioning piece on agricultural commodities. It should be out later this week. The obesity drug rabbit hole has unearthed a number of really interesting themes to think about. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure that we're looking at a major alteration in supply and demand dynamics for things like sugar, grains, and grains as a result of Ozempic and its, and its cousins. As Morgan Stanley conceded in its report, as more people in the US use obesity drugs, overall consumption of carbonated soft drinks, baked goods, and salty snacks may fall up to 3% by 2035. Big deal. A 3% reduction in checks notes 12 years time. I reckon that reduced consumption of ranch dressing flavoured Doritos on that time frame means that I can safely file GLP-1 as a footnote in my overall corn demand analysis. Corn demand is not being crushed by Ozempic. That would be an extrapolation way too far for this squirrel. That's all, we, that's all for this week on the pod. In the written report, we also have a full acorn review and a portfolio update covering um, offshore, energy, ags, DoorDash, Goldman Sachs, Mercedes-Benz, Coinbase, Uranium, and of course, I couldn't leave private equity out of it again. Thanks for listening. Please find out more about the squirrel at blindsquirrelmacro.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at squirrelmacro. Please leave us a rating and review on your app, and I hope to catch you here again next week. Squirrel out.